Hello, everybody. Welcome to the next installment of the Community Forum. Today, we have a super fun episode with the community members of our channel, plus a very special guest. If you haven't guessed by the thumbnail, I would recommend looking at the thumbnail. But anyway, we'll go ahead and get started. So today, we have uh, three folks in the community. We have Hans, we have Rodman, and we have Mike. Welcome, y'all. Welcome, welcome. And our super duper special guest, Mr. Emmett Peppers. How are you doing, sir? Hey, guys. I'm doing well. Doing well. Just dropped my kids off at camp, and uh, I'm ready. <laughs> awesome. Nice. Awesome, man. Cool. So what we'll do is the way the way we'll have these conversations are going to be super free-flowing and open. And also, people in the comments, definitely go in and drop comments uh, as we go through the conversation. I'll try to bring in relevant comments in the conversation as well. But the goal here is to just have a very free-flowing, open conversation about different topics. And we'll kick it off with the first one, which has been dominating a lot of the discussion lately, is Andre Karpathy leaving Tesla. So, Emmett, I'll just give you the mic and, and kind of have us uh, hear your thoughts, and then we'll take the conversation from there. Yeah, I'm not concerned at all, really. Um, you know, I know some people think it's like negative or I mean, I'm sad to see him go. He's a important person and, you know, he served a lot of uh, good to Tesla, I would imagine, over the last five or so years. Um, and uh, he's got, you know, I think the Tesla culture, from what I've heard, and as you know, far as I can burn people out and, uh, you know, maybe he wants to start a family or if he has a family, he wants to spend more time with his family. You know, there's a lot of reasons why he might have been planning to kind of transition for a while. It doesn't seem like it was sudden by any, you know, it would worry me a little bit if it was sudden and out of the blue and there was no like, you know, remarks from Elon about it. That would, that could be a little bit of a pink flag to me, but, uh, you know, this seems like it's been in the works for a while. And, uh, you know, one, I know people are saying that, you know, he's already done, contributed as much as he can or whatever. But one other idea is if I was in his shoes, if I was in Andre's shoes and I was kind of a low key guy and I don't really want the spotlight on me all the time. And unfortunately, somehow the spotlight has come to me for all full self-driving stuff because I've been leading the program. And then there's about to be a, like an imminent wide release for millions of cars to become robo taxis and the trigger of politicians and regulators and hedge fund shorts and media all being triggered by that and going completely AWOL when they see that disruption, you know, I would know that the target would be on my back if I'm still <laughs> at Tesla. And I would think, uh, I don't think I want to be there when this happens. So it's, it's coming up. I'm, this is my time to depart peacefully. <laughs> so if I was Andre, I might do the same thing. If that was, if I, you know, I wouldn't want that target. Elon, you know, he'll take the blow for him. But if Andre was still there, his name would be referenced numerous times by all these people, all these opportunists trying to uh, demonize Tesla's full self-driving when it disrupts everything. So, you know, that that's that's one idea I was thinking too. And and that's normal. That's fine if that's the case. You know, I don't, I don't, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's probably, but I don't see that theory or that idea being thrown around much. Mm -hmm. What do y'all think? Anybody have any other additional comments? Any thoughts? Um, I was reading on Twitter, there's some interesting um, speculation about why he left one of the things that happened is that when you're not working for a company you're really in touch with all the research papers that are coming out and and so they're just constantly learning and reading and reading like just tons of things and so but when you start working for a company you stop and so it's they say it's good to kind of go in work for a company for 
a short amount of time and then exit again so they can go back into being connected with all the research going on um, and then enter a company again after a while. So yeah, there's that. And then um, then there's Andre's uh, message, uh, his tweet, tweet about how he wants to um, he wants to do like some open source stuff. He wants to go into teaching. Um, I think that'll be very good for the world. Um, and so I think that's kind of where where his mind is. What do you guys think? I mean, yeah, he's like he's a Stanford. Like that's where he got his start. Um, so like, yeah, he'll he'll be. I, I don't think there's that much new, but as far as thoughts, but it. I, you know, just the, the fact that it's been four months already, things have been progressing. I think, I think everything's going to be okay. And if it's exactly like you guys said, if, if it was like all of a sudden and, you know, he dropped out and, you know, maybe, maybe he was back four months ago, he was already ready to let go. And then, you know, Elon was like, okay, let's just do this sabbatical thing. Let's make sure that, like nothing's going to fall apart when you're gone or that it's not too much of a shock for people. And then, and then after that you can go and that's what's happened. So. Yeah. 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 I really appreciate both of those perspectives that, you know, Emmett and Mike shared. Those are a little bit different than any of the ones that I had heard. But the other piece that I would add is that for Tesla, you know, not only do you have to be, very on your game technically and incredibly intelligent, incredibly hardworking, but you really to lead a program like that is, is very taxing and you have to have just that highest level of passion. And that is hard to sustain over long periods of time. And so even though he would be better than like 99% of people at almost any other company, um, that, yeah, that, that the demands of being in not just, in Tesla, but being in a position of leadership at Tesla, having all that outside pressure and scrutiny like Emmett was talking about, um, and then all the internal pressure of being the person who's setting that example day in and day out like Elon does of this is how hard we work, this is how much we focus, this is how we solve problems. Um, that's, you know, that's a lot. And so when you do that for five years and then you do want to, as Mike brought up, potentially get reconnected with, hey, what all is new out in the world of machine learning that's been going on that maybe has been going on in the fringes? You know, I guarantee you he's been reading tons of research papers, but they've been very focused. They've been research papers that he's needed to read to solve the specific problems that they're working on. And so if he has uh, the desire to just reconnect with general research that's outside of what his scope has been narrowed down to, then, you know, it's a great time for him to be able to get back to the roots of what really makes him passionate. That might be not necessarily um, the thing that is needed right now in this moment to move the mission of Tesla forward. So, you know, like Farzad said, I'm really excited for Andre. It's going to be great for him to get to get back to those roots. And I, I think that's why he mentioned that he doesn't have any specific plans is because he wants to just go out there and survey like, Hey, what all's going out on in the world of machine learning outside of what I've been doing. And I want to, yeah, get back in touch with that and then make a decision. Like what's my next move. Yeah. Yeah. Those are great points. 
Uh, Emmett, do you think there is any, <clears throat> excuse me, do you think there's any sort of impact to the stock price here based on this uh, at all? And, and if there was, would it have been priced in already? Do you, how do you think about that? I don't think so. Um, I think there was like an initial reaction after hours of like Tesla being down like 1%, you know, uh, when it was announced. Uh, but yeah, it doesn't seem material. You know, there's probably some uh, scared, you know, uh, retail traders. You know, I feel like a lot of the weak, kind of the week longs, quote unquote, have probably been shaken out of Tesla already in the last uh, several months. Yeah. So. <laughs> I don't think something like this is going to scare on the margin too many more kind of, in, you know, trader, you know, short term sighted traders out of Tesla. Yeah. Yeah. I think ultimately the, the, the a really good parallel to draw was maybe J.B. Straubel leaving and, mm -hmm. and how that was sort of a uh, some folks in the community were pretty scared. And then after he left, Tesla went in, into its uh, greatest ramp phase in history by pumping out new factory after new factory and installing we, capacity for, you know. Were you working yeah. there when JB Strubble left? Uh, yes, I was. Yeah, because I think was he like left What was like the in, feeling around the company or the morale from that, do you remember? Um, I think there were some people that were a little concerned because he's, he had been at the company for so long and he was his founder. Yeah. But um, after a couple of weeks, uh, it, stuff just kept moving. We're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> You know, if there's a if there's a company that knows like that, I think that's the yeah. prevailing theme here is like maybe maybe Andre leaving Ford as an example. That might be a big deal because maybe mm -hmm. he's a culture setter and he's uh, such a forward looking uh, technologist and somebody who's so talented that he may have been a super crucial part of that company's long term success. But Tesla is a talent, talent acquiring and talent making machine. So yeah. as great as Andre is, and again, like I couldn't be happier for the guy to, for him to really follow his passions and get to the next uh, chapter of his life. Tesla will be fine. I mean, they're able to bring in top tier talent every single minute of every single day. So, um, yeah, I think I think the like I keep kept kept, get, kept getting reminded of the time when JB Straubel left, and after he left, the company went into insane growth growth phase. So yeah, uh, I think something similar might happen with Andre. You know, not not because he can't do it, but it's you know sometimes new blood and new faces uh, are good just to have to shake up some things that maybe are, are stale or maybe that's just the kind of um, uh, atmosphere that you need f for you to go to the next phase. So. Um, yeah, I don't think there's very many uh, negatives here at all, honestly. I would just say, or it's that he's already set them up for success, right? Like, That's he yeah. would, like, like, he, like he's in charge of AI, not FSD. And, and like at the AI is like the vision, like the understanding, like what, it, what the car sees and what those things are and stuff like that. Maybe that's already done. You know, maybe he's like, yeah. my job here is done. You know, I, I feel like I left it in a good place. I don't know. What right, do you think yeah. about that, Emmett? What do you think about the whole? Uh, so I, I put forward this premise that I think FSD is actually done, but it's just a matter of collecting the data needed uh, to get it to where it needs to go. And Andre is a much smaller piece of that puzzle than people might realize. How? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think, think still more work. I think the I think there's that's probably the most likely um, explanation is that the hard part that he's been in charge of like the architecture of the AI and the neural network and interpreting that data that that has been sort of done. And, and that's like maybe sort of aligned with the single stack. I don't know, I'm talking about it in my butt at this point. I don't even know. But, <laughs> we all are. But it, it feels like the single stack or whatever, you know, that was like the solution that he feels like 
confident most about and that's sort of done. And now like uh, Robin and Mike were just saying like, it's just kind of the fine tuning everything around the edges of that architecture at this point to, to come, you know, for everything to work. And so he's like, okay, I did my hard part. I'm ready to move on, you know, and let Tesla's autopilot team, you know, and the rest of the AI team finish it from here. Yeah. Yeah. There was a comment here by uh, Lufti, who's, a, who's a, somebody who uh, frequents the channel. Uh, Andre was head of AI, not head of FSD. While he worked with FSD, his focus was probably in more general level and not most uh, of the hard problems were solved. Um, I'm assuming now now most most of the hard problems mm -hmm. were solved. So, right. yeah. um, cool. Mm -hmm. I think yeah, one of the interesting things to watch out for at AI Day that might give us an indication on that is... Uh, whether or not they really have transitioned to using Dojo more and more. Because um, that's a big piece of the architecture of how they're collecting data and doing the training that, you know, if if in the last six months to a year, they have transitioned and they're really rolling on using Dojo in a significant way and the roadmap is solid moving forward, um, you know, that also might be an indication that he completed that major project and that was kind of when he felt like his time was ready to start coming to a close you bring up a good yeah. point hans about the ai day is do you think elon and andre knew andre was going to be departing at the time elon planned and announced ai day you know the second ai day coming do you think that's part of the the softening of the blow of attracting you know so they can continue attracting talent by having kind of like a carrot on the stick still to like keep tesla exciting versus having like the one name everyone knows leaving Tesla. I mean, what do you think? What do you guys, or Hans, or you guys? What do you think? It, it certainly seems like there was the possibility on the horizon and that that was known. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I my general sense is that Andre really did make this decision while he was on sabbatical, that mm. he wasn't sure uh, where he was going to go yet. Um, that could definitely be mistaken but that's my general sense of things. And so, you know, I don't know when they planned it, if they knew that he was leaving, but they, they were probably planning for the possibility that he might be leaving. Yeah. So that was announced May 18th, which is well into his sabbatical. Uh, sabbatical so, yeah. I wonder how much of him going on sabbatical too may have been just him approaching Elon and saying, Hey dude, like, I feel like, I feel like the fire is not there. I feel like the passion is not there. I'm, I'm feeling a little burnt. And Elon's mm. like, go on sabbatical and see if you can get that figured out, you know. Mm. And so maybe, maybe Elon had a thought that Andre might want to might want to step away, and that's why he had the sabbatical in the first place. And mm. then Andre, after the sabbatical, he's like, uh, it's not there, sorry. And then Elon's like, yeah. no problem, we'll find something like that happened with Jerome Guillen years ago. Yeah. I think the first time he left, he went on sabbatical and then just left. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Andre might come back again. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, he, yeah, yeah. Who knows what could happen? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, I think overall my, my, uh, having been there, it's like, I, I, I have the, the, the longer the time has passed initially when, when it was announced, I was a, a little bit shocked because I'm like, man, I know he's super bright and I know he's super smart and he's obviously a great asset. But then I, after some hours and sort of days went by now, I'm like, okay, but Tesla is, it's the place to find that next generation of talent. And uh, imagine how many engineers there are on that AI team that could probably step in Andre's shoes tomorrow that now have the chance to do so. And so overall, that's it's great for development. It's great for Andre. And it could be great for Tesla, especially if that next generation of leaders steps in into that chair. So, yeah. And Andre said that himself. He said that like right. there's a lot of great engineers already, right? It's not just him. There's 100, 
you know, AI guys that are pounding away on this problem. And, and another thing that I was thinking is um, what's interesting about AI is that um, like in general, when you think about programming, you think about timelines and like how progress is dependent with time. And what we've seen like since, you know, like about 2014, 2012, when like deep learning started coming about, like progress has no relationship to like programming schedules or how much like time things take. Like FSD, like just suddenly makes big steps all of a sudden because of a model change. It's not because some guy was sitting there programming. It's because they changed the way they they're approaching the problem, changing the way they do the neural nets or changing the capacities or whatever. And like suddenly it does like it just makes leaps, leaps and bounds ahead. So it's kind of unpredictable because Mm -hmm. you just don't know when those things, when you're going to hit the right, when you're going to just like make the right structure to like have a neural net that can do, that can learn everything that you need it to learn. So it's just to to think that it's going to take an X amount of time to get something done. It's kind of, it's not been happening. We've just been seeing like massive progress, like GPT three came out and it like blew everyone's socks off because like I'm it just was suddenly there. Yeah. I mean like those things didn't take time to like code, right? They just, Oh, we put this model together and we threw a crap ton of data at it <laughs> and it, and like, look what it does. Yeah. So yeah, it's like coming guys, with the right approach and time. Don't you yeah. guys get the feeling that like the next big thing is like just about to happen now? Like I feel well, like back time. in 2000 yeah. after the dot com, it was like, oh, I don't know when the next big thing is going to be now. But now it feels like every few months I'm like, when is the next big thing going to be? I'm like, oh, yeah. I just feel like things are changing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's it's this it's this thing with AI where it's like, okay, let's try something. And so you try it. It takes like a month mm-hmm. to train or whatever. And then it comes out and it's like, that didn't work. A month later, they try something different. Everyone's iterating. And then it's like something just happens. It's like, ta-da, it works. You know, it's amazing. Yeah. 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 I think one thing to just draw out, though, that's important with reference to FSD is that there's a difference between the technological solution existing and being known. And then, like, how long does that take to be completely rolled out? And so I think maybe looking at Tesla insurance is a good example of that. This is a technological solution that is a known, stable, working solution. And yet it takes a long time to roll that out legally in all the different jurisdictions. And so I think people, especially Tesla investors, just need to think through that a little bit that just you know when fsd beta goes to wide release and everyone has access to it well first of all that'll just be in the united states and then it'll take a while before even that goes to different countries and different jurisdictions um and then the march from there to robo taxi like that's a whole nother thing that's going to take a long time and now there's the market is forward looking so there's probably going to be a point where the market gets it that's before it actually fully penetrates globally. Um, but yeah, just for people that are, and this is definitely not investment advice, but for people who are investors who are thinking about all this stuff, you need to separate the difference between the solution being figured out and when, yeah, when it's fully live everywhere. And then that's also, you know, I think goes back to Farzad's point about Andre probably had the solution pretty well to where it needed to be internally. And 
him completing that is not necessarily the same as being on board and leading the program through the entire rollout from here to, you know, however many years it's going to take to finish that. Yeah. Great points. Yeah. Great points. We actually have a comment here from AC. Totally agree. Hans, this will take a lot of time uh, and more than most people anticipate biggest roadblock. Um, maybe he wanted to keep going, but he may have pressed enter there by accident. And then, uh, Hey, when three, I do that, uh, <laughs> and then I agree with Ahmed, something about, uh, it feels like something big is around the corner. I think that I go back to Dolly too. like Dolly two is the best interpretation, uh, for that, for me, because it's, it's such a transformative thing that has happened in relation to AI. Like I, I, I applied to, I think Matt has access, right, Emmett? Doesn't he have access? Yeah, to I got access too, actually, a couple, week, oh, couple weeks ago. I started okay. doing it with my kids and letting them put things in. They, re- <laughs> they really loved it. They loved it. It was a cool exercise to do with the kids, you know? What do you think of it? Is it, is it, is it, as, uh, is it as transformative as it seems, or do you think that there's still some work to be done there? I mean, I think that it's, it's incredible the capability it gives you. Um, I haven't figured out myself how to, you know, create a ton of value, you know, for money-making purposes or, you know, my mind's always like on, how is someone going to make money off the, you know, I can't fig- quite mm-hmm. figure that out myself, but I tell my kids, they like try to come up with their own little comics or in this like phase writing their own comics or something. I was like, Hey, you guys could type in like a description of your comic title to generate a picture to put on the cover of your comic or something. And they were like, Oh, that's cool. So I'm just trying to think of ways to apply it. I'm not really sure. But uh, what about you know, maybe create funny memes from it or something? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, YouTube thumbnails. Have you thought about using it for that? That would be a good idea. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. Right there. See, like lots of applications people are going to start mm-hmm. doing. I, someone should do that if they haven't already. I'll, I'm going to start. I'm writing that one down. YouTube thumbnails. Yeah. <laughs> Put all the graphic designers out of work. You know. Well, yeah. I, th- I think you might have a really interesting source of insight there. I mean, like just letting your kids use it and see what creative ways they come up with. To yeah. use it might give more insight about what's coming down the pipe than, you know, using it as old, crusty adults. Yeah. Yeah. We can't we think out of the box like the kids can these days. Yep. Yeah. How old are your kids, if we can ask? Yeah, they're uh, 10. Uh, one's about to turn eight, and another one is six. So, wow. yeah. Yeah, my wife's away for uh, a few days. I'm on my own with them. They're at camp at the moment. Oh, but, uh, it's, it's you know. <laughs> I've been, I feel I've been, you. I've, <laughs> I figured out a, my, one of my best dad hacks is uh, putting on my AirPod Max headphones, which are comfortable, but also they lower the decibel level outside of everything. You know, so it keeps me from being triggered from the screams they have. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's really funny. Um, awesome. No, I appreciate you guys getting really in depth there with the um, topic around Andre and AI. Uh, Rodman, I think you had a uh, interesting topic to move us towards. And I think we have you for another uh, 45 minutes, Rodman, before you have to go. So maybe we'll give you the mic and lead us with the next, next topic here. Um, yeah, I guess. Um, yeah, just I have a five and five old, five year old and a nine year old and I have to go pick them up to take them to the doctor's office in about 45 minutes. Anyway, um, so we were kind of wondering what got you into investing originally. Me? Yep. Yeah. So when I was a kid, uh, I've always been fascinated with, um, you know, ma- in, not, I've always been naturally pretty good at math and, and stuff, but I've always been really interested in uh, um, games, you know, Monopoly or risk, you know, board games, all kinds of games, and then video games and video games that were like 
their own economies or whatever. You know, there was like this brand KOEI, I remember. And they had these crazy strategy games that were like you're part of it. And this was like in the 90s, early 90s and yeah. stuff, you know. And, um, and and then when I was in high school, uh, I there was like an economics class I took and the teacher kind of introduced me to the idea of the stock market. And I was like, what? A game you can actually make money in? <laughs> and I started realizing like the odds are in your favor. What? This is crazy. And I'm like, yeah. it's not a casino where the house always wins. You're determined to, you're always going to lose. This is like nothing, like just triggered me. And I was like, I have to know this, you know. And then my my maturity took a sabbatical for a few years, <laughs> years, <laughs> and beginning of college. And I, you know, and um, and then I came back to my picture, senses. That Halloween picture came through. The one with the Red Hot Chili Peppers one. <laughs> oh yeah, that, that was actually when my maturity came back. You know, that's that's the mature image actually. But uh, but, uh, but but yeah, when I was in my early twenties again, I was graduating college finally um, after you know, three attempts. I'm lucky to even have, most people are lucky to get one. I had a third attempt to go to college after, you know, anyway. So I graduated with like a communications degree, which was like a weakness of mine, but it was easy. You just show up to the class and maybe give a presentation once in a while and you get like A's, you know, but you know, I'm a slow reader and like philosophy I majored in earlier, but I just couldn't keep up with the reading requirements. And anyway, so after I graduated, I, I, uh, I wanted to get back into finance and I lived in a town called Stanford, Connecticut, like a satellite of New York City. But the biggest employer in Stanford, Connecticut was UBS Investment Bank and they had their North American headquarters there. And it was like the biggest trading floor in the world at the time. And I was always fascinated with traders and like Wall Street because those people made the most money. And this was like right around the year 2000, 2002 or something like that. And, uh, you know, so I, my dream was to always figure out a way to work there and then um, – you know, I got had one job. I was introduced to someone to become a temp worker there in like their back back office. And my first job was like sorting bins of return mail. But I just, you know, I worked my way up and I got onto the trading floor as like an assistant type job to like all the traders or something called the equity middle office. And I did well there, but I got to see more aspects of trading than I ever knew about. But I could also see the writing on the wall that traders, that type of job was on its way out. Everything's being automated, you know? And so I was like, ah, oh, what do I, what do I do? You know, like, and I got to a place where I was like in a fork in the road where I was like, I could either go into this training program to become a trader for a job that's going to be obsolete eventually, like in five or 10 years, probably. And, but maybe I'll get paid well for a while. If I do really well, maybe I'll be one of the few that sticks it out with that job. Or I could try something different because I had saved money by the time I was in my late twenties and or mid mid to late twenties, and uh, I tried to. So I, I I tried something different. A friend of mine was a day trader at one of these like day trading shops in New York City, and I had gone to see him a few times. And what he was doing was like really quick day trading, like you know, high, it, it, it was like he'd buy he'd follow three or four stocks at once and watch the the second level of data, you know, all day on them. And uh, pick opportunistic times to buy a thousand shares and wait for it to go up a dollar, then sell a thousand shares or short, you know, 500 shares, wait a few seconds and, and buy them back for 30, 30 cents better. So, you know, ideally you're right, you know, at least 51% of the time or 52% of the time with the commissions and stuff. And he did pretty well and he was making, you know, consistently, you know, a thousand dollars a day or something. Um, but when I went to try it, I just sort of burned through my savings slowly, but surely I wasn't like patient enough. And it's a very tricky thing, the day trading stuff, you know, the, at that time in 2000, I think it was 2005 or something, the high frequency trading, um, machines and algorithms were really taking, you know, away, you know, really ruling the, uh, short-term trading. And so, For sure. 
Yeah. So after like six months, uh, burning through some of my savings, I, I realized I couldn't do that. And I didn't want to go back to UBS. And I found like a really good job in like, uh, client service, uh, for like small hedge funds at interactive brokers. And that was in 2006. And then the more I learned about interactive brokers, I realized it's like the future of electronic trading or you know, they're way ahead of the game and the founders and super impressive and, and stuff. And, um, what is interactive brokers? It's an electronic trading, uh, broker brokerage firm like Schwab or E-Trade or oh. Ameritrade, but it's more for sophisticated investor, more, the most sophisticated investors or high net worth investors will more likely go to interactive brokers versus E-Trade, for example. Okay. Um, and, and there's like a lot of small hedge fund managers that use it, including my fund now uses it. But being in client service there, I was exposed by helping so many of these like sophisticated investors, you know, or small hedge fund managers that have like super smart people, much brighter than me, you know, they're like MIT rocket scientists, PhDs of like math doing like crazy quantitative strategies back tested to the moon or just like really impressive people that were like way smart, a lot of alpha personality types too. But a lot of them called and were like, how do I use, how do I put my strategy into your system and do it? And they'd have to explain their investment strategy. And then I'd have to translate that and help them translate it into how to enter that into the trading platform software that interactive brokers offered which was not user friendly, you know? And it was like a Bloomberg terminal if you ever looked at one of those, you know? And so uh, I learned a lot about different investment and trading strategies um, in that job and that role for a while. And it fascinated me. And uh, by us, I also realized most uh, of these super smart people don't beat the market. You know, they don't beat the S&P 500 over any like three or five year period, you know? It, it's, uh, it's sort of like, I tell people it's like learning Santa Claus isn't real. Like when you're a kid, you know, like I had this dream of becoming maybe a hedge fund manager myself and making tons of money. But then I realized that like most of the smartest people, none of them beat the market. I, so I started telling friends, I was like, I oh, just buy index funds. That's probably the best thing, you know? And, uh, but then I realized that if I could find the next generational stock and like use some of my expertise, you know, I don't really have expertise, but some of my knowledge around options and how to use that as an instrument for leverage, then maybe that's like an interesting opportunity to to work on in my own personal trading account. And so that's sort of how I found, I discovered Tesla in like 2010 and then started doing stuff around that with my so IRA account. Had you seen that strategy work for any of the clients or was this just a basically an intuition that you had that you decided yeah. to go and explore on your own? Yeah, and I saw something similar like that work for a client. I mean, you'd see some clients, their account values go up. You know, I don't necessarily know what's in their account, but as it, when I transitioned to sales at Interactive Brokers especially, then I could see like my client's account balances. Like if they went up a lot, then I'd call and be like, hey, how are you doing? Hopefully everything's going well. You know, I like try to make them be happy to be a client. But if, you know, their account went to like close to zero, I know I probably don't need to call that guy. He's probably out of business now. <laughs> so, um <laughs> So I remember having one like hedge fund client started with like a couple million bucks or something, but it shot up to like $20 million in like six months. And I was like, whoa, what's this guy doing? And uh, so I, I'm trying to learn what he's doing better so I can service him better and make him be a more so that other prime brokers don't woo him away from interactive brokers too, right? Because people who trade, he was generating a lot of commission at the same time and he was getting bigger. And um, 
I talked to the guy and he's a super nice guy and he had kind of shared some of his strategies. Success is basically at the time when Apple was really growing from like, I don't know, it was like 2010 or 12 or something, 11, maybe 2009. It was before I really discovered Tesla, I think. So it was like 2008 or 2009. Um, he, uh, he was buying like options of Tesla, of Apple supplier, you know, stocks and options of Apple because he was so bullish on Apple. And, uh, and Apple was moving up, you know, like 50%, you know, a year at that time. I don't know. It was moving up fast, just buying, you know, but buying these call options and the suppliers of some of Apple suppliers and the supplier would go up like 50 or hundred percent in a quarter because it was like announced to be partnered with Apple or something. You'd, you know, he'd make a fortune, you know, and his account went up to like 20 million. Then it went back down to like 5 million. Then it went up to like 15 million. It was crazy. But, uh, I saw the power of call options and what they could do, you know, from that. And uh, it sort of seeded me to like think maybe I should have, you know, I think later when I discovered Tesla, I just naturally was like, I should maybe buy a lot of call options. And I think there was like a Motley Fool article that suggested it too at the time, uh, like in 2010, when I first, that's how, one of the first times I was reading about Tesla and they were like, buy long-term call options. And it's funny, I so, later met the author of that Motley Fool article for, for work purposes and he never followed his own advice. <laughs> That's crazy. So, yeah. so do most people? Did that guy? He was on the buy side or the sell side? Which guy? The uh, the hedge fund manager? Yeah, that was doing the options or, or that yeah, client. he was on the buy side. Oh, he's I'm okay. I was on the sell side because I'm like working for the brokerage firm. No, I'm um, not the options. Sorry. Oh, he was buying call options. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Sometimes people say buy side, sell side in the financial industry, like. Do you work on the buy side or do you work on the sell side? That means like if you work on the buy side, that means you work for like a hedge fund right. or like an ETF or something that's or a financial advisor, someone that's actually making the decision making to do the investments. And the sell side is someone that services all those people like brokerage firms or prime brokerage firms or investment banks. Anyway. Gotcha. So, uh, yeah, I guess I'm just misusing the terminology. But no, you're not misusing. Yeah. I just wasn't sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Like I think options have actually been a lot of a lot of interest for Tesla owners, either, you know, selling options to just like make extra uh, cash on that or, you know, like I think over the last, since 2019, like if you were on buying call options, you were like, there was a lot of money to be made. Uh, did yeah. you have any thoughts of like what the advantages and disadvantages of like buying versus selling options yeah, I mean, you just never know when um, Tesla is going to go up, you know, two to 10x in a short period of time. You know, you just don't know. And, uh, you know, I remember from 2013, like I was there for the 2013, 2014 10x plus run. And 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 I kept thinking, oh, another big runs around the corner from 2014 to 2019, you know, and it didn't happen. Wow. Even though the business... <laughs> was growing the revenue was growing you know more than we realized you know the product was incredible you know it was becoming more clear that you know once they got this model three up that they would get it up and once they got it, it was gonna be it was becoming more and more clear to me and and at the same time the stock was not reacting the way i thought it should you know and so we could be in that kind of phase where you know the stock you know we all see the business doing very well the new technology the ai and with the full self-driving, we all see this and we think the stock should be reacting, but it's hard to say if we're in another kind of, you know, multi-year span where the stock kind of just sticks around, hovers around a $1 trillion market cap, let's say, or, or something like, 
you know, just because I've been there before, you know, and, and, um, but, but at the same time, maybe it does go up two or three X, you know, in the next year or two, and you sold call options because we think that, and then you got called out of your call options, you know, so it's risky. Um, you know, people, some people sell like weekly call options. I even think those are risky. It's like playing with fire. It's like, yeah, you're, you're picking up pennies before a steamroller kind of thing, you know, like when you're selling the weekly call options, like you just don't know what week, you know, a lot of times it's a week with no news and no known catalyst where suddenly the right. stock goes up 20% in a week, you know, it's weird. Yep. Yeah. Weird. I, I, I'm on another forum and there's a lot of people like we're, we're talking about options with Tesla all the time. And like one of the big things is people are using, they're selling t- uh, call options and they feel comfortable with it. And um, yeah, it's, I mean, I guess it's just an acceptance of risk and, and stuff. Do you have a feeling about like, if you're buying options, like whether you're like leaps or long-term options are like the th- way to go versus yeah, like near term? Yeah. Or mid-term? The way I think about selling call options, one thing on that is um, like, if you go to a casino and you play roulette, everyone knows the game of roulette, right? There's like 60 numbers you could bet on. Well, selling call options on Tesla short-term call options is like putting your money on 58 of the 60 numbers, you know, or whatever, like 56 or 55, whatever, where like you, you make a little bit of money against the house odds every time, except the one in 50 times it lands on the number you didn't bet on. Then you lose all your marbles. You know, that's what I feel like right. selling call options is like. So it can be, it can be, it can psychologically trick you if you do it a few times in a row. Like, hey, this is okay. I'm making extra money, but you just don't know when the time when the, you know, you're going to be off and, and, and get called away in your stock. And that's not that big of a deal. Maybe some people are prepared to exit their Tesla stock, but they're kind of not sure. That's the one time I, I, I think about selling call options is if like, I have a portion of shares I have that I don't, you know, that I, I'm looking to potentially liquidate, but I'm not sure. I'm kind of on the fence. Well, in the meantime, while I'm thinking about it, maybe I'll sell a covered call option or something, you know, but yep, makes you know, sense. that's the only time. Yeah. And then what was the question you had? The other question? Like, uh, what did you think about how, I mean, I, I guess this becomes investment advice, but um, <laughs> Like no, it's not long term <laughs> versus not investment <laughs> advice. Not. Doesn't become advice. <laughs> um, I mean, just like okay, what are your thoughts about like long term buying, long term call options versus maybe medium to short term? I mean, I guess again, you're just playing the same. Yeah, like, yeah. For buying the call option, yeah, like you guys said, none of this is investment advice. It's just my own thinking, my own opinions of how I do things, and. Um, you know, in my personal accounts or, or you know, how, how, how I have done things in my personal accounts in the past and stuff. And um, it, it, buying call options, whether it's like long-term call options or medium-term or short-term, I have to be willing to lose that entire amount of money. It's like going to the casino. I go with like a thousand bucks in my pocket or 500 bucks or something. And I'm like, all right, I, I might, I, I'm probably going to lose most of this or all this money. I have to accept that, you know, like I'm going to have a good time. And there's a small chance I'd hit some jackpot on the, you know, I don't play slot machines, but maybe I do really well at the blackjack table or, or poker table or whatever. And it turns into something much bigger, you know, I'll be surpri- pleasantly surprised. Right. So same with call options is like, you know, you have to, you have to sort of separate a sep- a bucket of my money. That's how I thought of it. Like in that in case was a particular IRA account I had, for example, or a per- portion of my personal trading account at the time where I was willing to lose it. You know, I had a good job, a good salary, had a good 
stock plan, savings plan with the job from the company I worked at, a 401k and all that. But I had this money I could afford to kind of experiment with in the stock market. And that money I'm okay losing. I started buying call options in Tesla and some of them did really well, but I kept it as like house money. And then it just grew over time as house money. And I kept playing with that house money. I didn't take money out. I did actually take money out a lot of times to pay for things or buy a Tesla product, for example, but, uh, and borrow against it. But it grew at a faster rate than all the money I took out, luckily. But I realized that pot of money was like separate. Like it, it wasn't it wasn't really part of my my main nine to five job. You know, it was just a separate thing, you know. So I was willing, I knew I could lose it all if Tesla went down to, you know, went down a lot for a couple of years straight because I, I had a lot of call options, you know. But I would also, at the time, I had a lo- I would mostly long-term call options. I would be careful and try to roll them over a lot. Like in that 2014, 2019, I think I did some analysis with Dave Lee on his channel where my IRA account went up to like $500,000 or more from like $4,000 in from 2012 to 2014, right? And then from 2014 to 2019, it went from like $500,000 down to $50,000. <laughs> so it went down a lot, you know? And, uh, that was my most, my biggest gambling account is the IRA account. And, uh, and then it went way up after that 2019, but uh, it, I was prepared to lose it all. And I almost did. Right. But I, I always lived to trade another day by buying more, by trying to roll out my long-term call options. As soon as like new ones came out, I would try to, you know, when there's still time value left on the old options that weren't, you know, doing as well as I thought I'd kind of sell those and buy longer term call options. So I just knew given enough time, Tesla was going to be worth a lot more. I just didn't know how much time it would be yeah. so in retrospect with your experience of going through that period from 2014 to 2019 where you did almost get wiped out like and we'll say not thinking about your hedge fund strategy but your own personal ira strategy moving forward are you going to be doing things different to manage your risk in case we are in a prolonged say five-year period of sideways trading or you know how are you handling that moving forward uh, based on your experience? Yeah. So <clears throat> my, uh, my IRA account has been, um, pretty, pretty well diversified at this point. Uh, it's still very heavy on Tesla and I think it's like a third of it's like SpaceX. And I gave like a third of it to like, uh, an investment advisor who was a close friend of mine who just like the opposite end of the spectrum investing and in is very value. It put it, he put it in like a value based ETF, you know, strategy, which has done actually well, luckily, compared to the Tesla stuff and and, and in the last couple of years. But um, so that's my like IRA that used to be the gambling account, but it's become more diversified. Really the hedge fund, you know, you know, I, I, 10 or 20% of my net worth is in the hedge fund. Maybe, maybe it's more than 20% actually. So it's, it's, it's a sizable amount of my net worth is in the hedge fund, but it's the, the amount that I sort of gamble with. And, and all the investors in my fund, we've always, made sure that it's no more than 10% of their net worth that they put in our funds because it's meant to be the most risky kind of element of their basket of diversification. You know, that's what we kind of explain. And so that's where we do the most kind of aggressive stuff. Um, at the same time, we want the fund to survive. So sometimes we do do things, you know, to diversify a bit in the fund or to try to extend if Tesla's not going up you know, in the next three months, like we thought it would or something, we'll do things to kind of make sure we're not like losing the whole fund on that bet or something, you know? So, but the most risky investments we do is that at this, at this point is in the fund, my IRA account. Sometimes I kind of 
buying some short-term call options that are like super off the wall risky that I don't want to put in the fund because I didn't like, well, I didn't really research it. It's just kind of a gut feeling idea, you know, and those often turn to nothing, you know, but, uh, I try to leave those in my, in for a small portion of my IRA account. And then I have a personal trading account, which is mostly just Tesla shares. And it's like, you know, longer term, just, you know, it's pretty much all Tesla shares at this point. It's so hard to do the research on every stock that you, that you're interested in buying. I mean, you could yeah. spend days, weeks, you know, trying to learn everything about the company. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you just kind of only like, how do you, how do you deal with the research? Yeah, when I'm not doing very good, you know, I'm doing a ton of research. That's when I do the kind of if I want to, if I'm itchy to do something and I just have a suspicion or want to just a gut feel about something, that's when I'll do it in my IRA account, something kind of wacky. Yeah. Um, but uh, for the fund, yeah, you're right. Um, we take it much more seriously and we do research, you know, the four names we're most concentrated in. We go public about, you know, Lemonade, Rocket Lab. Um, Roblox and Tesla. I mean, Tesla is our highest conviction name, and we study we study that more than fifty percent of the time, or more than that, probably at this point. And therefore, we have you know the, by far the high, you know, more than fifty percent. I don't know. We have a high, I can't really talk about it too much, but we've talked publicly that it's by far our highest uh, concentration position at this point of exposure. So, but Tesla itself is like ten companies or more rolled up into one in a lot of ways, like you mentioned, insurance and. They're full self-driving AI, battery technology, solar, you know. Um, so there's a lot of uh, things within Tesla. It's a, it's like a huge, you know, homework just to keep up on all that, you know. So you mentioned like – Sorry, go, go, ahead. go ahead. No, please. Um, you mentioned like both you have uh, investments in SpaceX, which is still private, and Rocket Labs. That's kind of an interesting – like kind of question is like rocket labs like a like a suitable substitute if you can't get access to spacex yeah it's a good question it depends like what you think about the space industry you know what the valuation of it should be in the future i guess and i don't technically have a direct investment in spacex i have exposure to SpaceX through a special purpose vehicle fund you know and i think that's how most people get exposure to spacex at this point um but uh, Rocket Lab, yeah, you can buy. It's an exchange traded stock. You know, you can. It's on. Uh, it, it's much. You can see a lot of, of financials. You can. They're much more transparent because it's publicly traded, and you can study it up. You know, and the founder of, of Rocket Lab, Peter Beck, he's super impressive to Matt and I. Um, and we just feel like it's the. We don't think it's ever going to become what SpaceX is or going to become, but we think it's a second place, a clear second place, maybe a distant clear, but clear, you know, unlike in the EV market, you don't really know who the second place is going to be at this point. Um, but we, the more we study the space, all the space companies, there's the, the, the real factor of what we think could means your second place is if you get to lower earth orbit consistently and successfully and no one else has been able to get to lower Earth orbit in our from what we've seen, with reusability being the caveat, right? Well, yeah, reusability is something that um, Rocket Lab is building out uh, with their Neutron rocket. Mm-hmm. But even just getting to lower Earth orbit, we haven't seen anyone else. Uh, I guess the United Launch Alliance, but that's like a combination mm-hmm. of companies, and uh, they're super expensive. If you add up their valuations, it's like ridiculous yeah. too. But they do a whole uh, bunch of other things, it's not like a pure play, yeah. When do you see that they could actually become profitable? Like, is it? Yeah, I mean, it's a that you know that's for 
you really have to believe in the space industry and 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 Rocket Lab is sort of um, trying to offer, we're trying to be a one-stop shop for, for companies or governments that want to do something within space. And so they can build the satellite, they can launch it, they can maintain it, they can, right. you know, do do A to Z for you. So they're, they're, they have a little bit of a different um, business model, I would say, that I think I, I in some ways I like a lot. Um, and um, and I think, you know, Matt's modeled it. He's kind of the modeling guy. And and I don't know exactly what year he's projecting right now, but I would say and second half of the decade is when they become – it's more of like a venture investment, even though it's publicly traded. It's sort of like, do you think the rest of the market is going to value the space industry to a much larger degree in the coming years? And if they do right. – you would got You got to think Rocket Labs right there as one of the top breadwinners outside of SpaceX. You know, and so um, I guess uh, one one theory I have is that when SpaceX uh, spins out Starlink to be a publicly traded company, which I think they've talked about doing, right? And maybe that's next year, the year after, or something. But uh, when they do that, um, I think that could generate a whole new uh, level of buzz to the space industry again. And so you'll see Starlink get like a hundred billion plus valuation maybe. And, um, you know, all these other space companies are going to pretending to be doing what they think, you know, I repeat, you know, uh, copying Starlink and like the Rivian's copying Tesla or whatever, you know, and you'll have all these other space companies benefit and get rising valuations. And I think Rocket Lab will be a big benefit factor of that. So where is Rocket Lab currently getting its capital and how are you thinking about the risk of the availability of capital, you know, if we really have a terrible macro environment moving forward for a few years? Yeah. Well, they have tons of uh, customers lined up and New Zealand is where they do, you know, launch the, all their rockets out of up to now. They, I think they have a, a place in Virginia they're uh, about set up to set up setting up to launch rockets from too. But right now, New Zealand they have a couple of launch pads and it's been very, it's been, you know, a much more strict lockdown COVID country, uh, relatively speaking. So they haven't been able to launch as many rockets as they otherwise could have by a long shot for the last couple of years. But just in the last like few months, things have really started mm -hmm. opening up and their, the cadence of their launches are, are, are growing and, uh, their finances from, from, you know, if you look, you know, Matt's looked at this stuff a little more closely. He's sort of the accounting balance sheet, you know, so I can't recite the numbers like he can. But from what I understand, um, you know, they're very uh, cost effective with their capital. And I think they have, you know, several hundred million, like 500 million or 700 million of, you know, I, I can't recall exactly the, the number of cash on their balance sheet right now. But uh, they have a lot of cash and runway and at the current you know burn rate they could go many many quarters if they if they had to but we think that they're um you know i've listened to their earnings calls and their cfo and they've made some acquisitions in recent quarters and analysts asks them like hey why are you making these acquisitions don't you think you need the capital for later and um they they said that they've made strategic acquisitions but they think they're basically going to earn back more than the capital it, it costs for them to buy mm -hmm. these smaller space services companies by the, the, the revenue that they're going to generate. And, uh, I, I believe them, you know, and I, I, uh, from based on their last couple quarters, 
earnings metrics, it seems like they are super cost efficient. And, and now that their cadence of launches is picking up, they'll recognize, uh, I think, much more revenue per quarter. So I'm, it's possible they're profitable, you know, a few quarters from now. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's possible they're profitable next quarter. They've already had a couple of launches this quarter. So um, I just don't know specifically, but it's to me, it's more of like a longer term play in this and on the space services side of things. And uh, like satellite um, constellations is a huge <clears throat> potential service they can get into. And we, we'd stumbled upon them just as a byproduct of being like a huge SpaceX fan, SpaceX fanatic sure. investor. So I've studied a lot of different space companies and there's excitement around a lot of them. But this one just seemed to hit the nail as like the best option. If you want exposure to space, the space industry, this seemed like the best option, you know, out there. Just to pick up on something like that you really like kind of gave me an epiphany is that like when you're investing in like some of these like later stage, I mean, early, early stage companies, like you, like I asked a VC friend of mine, like, it was like, how do you approach this stuff when you don't have financial models? You can't do, a, you know, you can't, you can't model these things. And so it's, it's based on like your belief in that idea. Right. And yeah. that sort of, ties back to like Tesla because Tesla is this weird company that has both like a really strong, like existing model and it has all this other stuff like FSD Optimus, you know, and everything else that comes after it's like, well, you can't price those things. In, and those things you have to invest in them just like it's a VC. Right. So mm-hmm. like, it's this really weird combination of, it's half VC and half existing company. And most people aren't giving them the credit for that part that is like, you have to think like a VC mm-hmm. exactly. to like evaluate. So, yeah. And that's what's most exciting because that's where you get the biggest potential returns. And a lot of times those oh, yeah. companies have the tiniest of market caps for that reason. You know, like Rocket Lab is less than 2 billion market cap and relatively speaking to SpaceX, that's tiny, you know, yeah. um, lemonade insurance is like a one. What is it right now? I'm looking it is uh, one just over one billion market cap, and they have like almost that much cash on their balance. It's crazy. So, um, a lot of these companies, uh, but Roblox is another stock. It's like twenty something billion market cap, and it's, that's a different thing. But that's you know, but that's also in a way part VC to some degree um, thinking. You know, but uh, yeah. So you do have to. I I do try to think like that when investing stocks. You know, picking stock stocks, and if it if 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 you're thinking, if my if I'm right, then you have a much bigger reward than if I'm right about picking Honeywell or or uh, GE. You know, <laughs> GE or something. Yeah, I mean, yeah. a value stock can only go up so much, you know, mm-hmm. if you pick it at the right time. But you know, anyway, that's uh, yeah, that's my ph- ph- how I like to invest. It's more more fun and exciting. Yeah, maybe the VC is the value, right? <laughs> like yeah. people aren't analyzing that value. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's really, really interesting. Emma, do you think there's going to be a trend towards more individual investors thinking that way? Like, like how do you, I think there was a a question that, um, uh, Hans, you dropped in the private chat. Um, Mm -hmm. Oh, I just read Rodman at the end. Sorry. I want to steal your question. Uh, but opinion on how retail investors should progress from ETFs to single stocks. It seems like the age of Tesla has sort of allowed this to like be more visible to people on how you can have outsized gains. Do you see this as an overall trend? And, and how do you think about that? I think most people should not 
transition out of ETFs. Um, if you're really, you know, into finance though, and you really into, you know, the stock market and you really, it's passionate and you're super curious about it, then, you know, in the, in that case, then yeah, sure. Um, maybe segment, you know, take out some of the money out of ETFs to put into single stocks that you really like. But, you know, when I talk to friends or family, you know, that ask a similar type of question or what should I, what stock should I buy or whatever? I always say, that's the wrong question. You know, <laughs> don't, don't ask what stock you should buy. You know, that's, that means you're on the wrong path. You should stay in ETFs, you know, like you need to, you, you don't want other people to tell you what to talk about. You want to come to the conclusion yourself and, and decide for yourself. Because any time in my past, and I've made that mistake many times, you know, but any time in the past where I follow someone else, you know, and, and someone else, even though I think they're super smart and a lot of times they are, you know, um, it seems like it usually doesn't work out well. You know, if I'm like, oh, this person's super smart, they're buying uh, Snowflake, everyone on all in podcasts talking about it, so I want to buy it or whatever, or, you know, whatever the, the, the thing is, something, if I don't fully understand it myself, you know, there, then it's a red flag and I need to ste step away and just not partake in that because that's when I get burned the most is if I don't understand a company or a business very well, but I'm just buying it because other people that are smart are saying they're buying it and they think it's a really big investment. Does that make sense? So it nobody should invest in crypto is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I don't buy, that's why I don't invest much. I don't invest in like Ethereum really, or right? You know, because like, yeah. I don't fully understand it, to be honest. Like I understood Bitcoin early, you know, I studied that carefully way back in the Byzantine general problem that it solves and such. And I, I loved it. And I bought some back in like 2011, but not a lot, but I bought some and I still hold, you know, the vast majority of it. But yeah, a lot of crypto, all these coins, all these weird tokens are all like weird derivatives of like derivatives of the original crypto mm -hmm. stuff. So I just totally way beyond my mind. And I just don't, I don't even, I, I, if I miss out on the upside, I miss out on the upside. Mm -hmm. I can't get, I can't get the FOMO, you know, you got to watch out for the FOMO, right? That's what, that's what, it's like a trap, you know, it sucks us into these things. Yeah. You know, what's one thing I've been thinking about a lot the last couple of years um, since really COVID started and we had that market uh, quote unquote crash and we had the V-shaped recovery from 2020 to 20, like late 2021, there's been a lot of individual investors out there that have made so much money during that time period and those like super uh, risky investments, even crypto, like and GameStop and all these other ones. And now we're like in this, uh, on the other side of it where we've lost um, all those companies essentially got wiped out and crypto has gone through a gigantic pullback. I wonder what the appetite is from a uh, retail investor. Like, I wonder if lessons have been learned since that happened. And I wonder if there's going to be uh, a sort of um, uh, a, an unwillingness for people to want to go into individual stocks because of what happened since late last year. Does that make any sense? Like, I wonder if those those events have have sort of re um, it's almost like a like a learning lesson for these people that says, hey, like individual stocks are extremely risky. You never know what's going to mm -hmm. happen. And everybody mm -hmm. got, you know, everybody lost a lot of money. Um, mm -hmm. I wonder if that's going to change the landscape of how people invest in the coming years because of what happened, you know? So yeah, thinking about it absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think that happened probably. I wasn't really investing in single stocks after the dot-com crash myself. I don't know if I, I think I did a few things, but I don't, yeah, I actually was investing in some stocks that all did bad. And I was, you know, getting learning lessons back then. Like I remember buying United Airlines 
for like a dollar thinking, oh, this stock is, I had no idea what market caps were back in like 2000. I, you know, <laughs> and I was like, dollar, what? And it went bankrupt. I lost like a few hundred bucks on that. But then I had some wins like XM satellite radio at the time was like three bucks and went for like 30 bucks. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. That's just did well on that, you know. But I think um, people will just have to learn. They learn through, you know, hard lessons and, you know, the people who learned <laughs> the hard lesson in 20, 2020, 2021, they're probably not going to come back to buying single name stocks, like you said, um, ever, maybe, you know, they're just like, yeah. I can't, I'm never doing that again. You know, I'm, I'm imagining, you know, so and even crypto, Bitcoin, there's probably, you know, and that's just a certain segment of people that bought high and had to and sold low and, and recognize huge losses. But there's some people that sold that bought medium and sold a little bit higher or bought medium and sold medium, you know. There's still a lot of people that that made money, and um, those people are probably more excited to, than ever to invest again. You know, more money, especially if they recognize the market momentum switching. Yeah, Hunter, were you going to say something? I saw you smiling. I wasn't sure if it was something. Yeah, no, just enjoying that that line of reasoning. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, Robin, we still got you, or do you have to? Uh, yeah, I probably should yeah. be taking off soon. But uh, Emmett, it's been really fabulous talking with you. Um, hope to do it again sometime soon. Sure, yeah. Nice talking with you too, Rodman. Thanks for uh, joining us. Good to yep. see you, Rodman. Thanks, for Thanks, Rodman. Bye. Awesome. Um, maybe we'll use this uh, here to uh, read a couple comments here because uh, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot yeah. of uh, movement here. There was a question that was actually dropped uh, by Richard. Let me see if I can find it. It was around... It was in, uh, in relation to Tesla and um, how Elon sort of has been. Here it is. I found it. Uh, Emma, do you think that the stock value of Tesla would be greater if Elon only ran products and problem solving and a CEO ran day to day and spoke for a company? Um, I think this question has been brought up before in, in different forums. But um, how do you think about that nowadays with the whole Twitter and the politics and all that stuff going on? Yeah. Um So I think uh, this is all within Tesla. Like if Elon was only like, uh, what? I think I think the CEO of Twitter, the role of the CEO and um, products and problem solving within Tesla are kind of just intertwined. And I think you know they're or they're best when they're intertwined, right? If you try to separate that. That's when you get like GM or you get like Ford, you know. So when you have the C the person who is the CEO, also the person who understands all the problems and issues and engineering behind the products, that's when you have a company that can move fast and be nimble. So, you know, I don't think Elon is going to relinquish the CEO role anytime soon. If he did, I would be a little worried. Um, but uh, when that time comes, you know, uh, you know, I think. Tesla will still do well, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and there was another one. We got a uh, Tesla Boomer Mama is in the is in the chat. Hello. Oh, hey, how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> What's up? <laughs> yeah. Awesome. She's great. I yeah, she was just on our live stream a couple of days ago. Yeah. yeah, I love her ESG knowledge. Like she really gets it. I mean, I've been I've been thinking that for years. Like ESG is just a scam. It's like so messed up. It's just like it, it, I remember. You know, you look at the ESG scoring systems, and I remember always thinking, like, how is Exxon ahead of Tesla on this stuff? You know, like, because I only think of environment, and I, and I think she had a good idea, like, of saying that, like, you should just break it up. Like, why is it like these three letters together? Like, I don't know. I guess like they're like not really related. You know, they're like three separate things: environmental, 
sustainability or social and governance, I think, or something, you know, yeah. so maybe they just need to break those three letters to be three different things or something. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I would have been completely blind to it uh, unless somebody like uh, Alexandra shone a light on it. Because I'm like, I, Same. it's like the layman doesn't really, you know, the way I like to say mm -hmm. it, it's such a complex topic and it's in yeah. such a uh, field that no one really understands. Very, very few people actually know how something like that works and how it influences how businesses get funded, how, how you know, in, indices work and all that stuff. And yeah, nobody would know that unless uh, somebody like Alexandra would put in the time mm -hmm. to sit down and lay that out for us, you know? It's crazy. It's true. And a lot of the regular day-to-day -day people that are investing in ETFs, you know, they might want to be what's like socially responsible. They might want to do the responsible thing and be like, oh, invest in these ESG ETFs, but not realize that like Tesla is not even part of a lot of them now or something. You know, it's like mm -hmm. ridiculous. It's so yeah. weird. It's so weird. Um, Mike, let's have you maybe uh, drive us on to, onto the next topic. Uh, what would you like to um, posit? Let's use a password. Um, so there's, you call them the week-long investors, um, and then there's the long-term investors uh, for Tesla. Um, and there's a lot of, I'm more of a long-term investor, and there's a lot of like, news and hype and buzz about like delivery numbers near the end of each quarter. Yeah. And I don't really look into that much. I don't know why mm -hmm. I would, because I just, I bought my Tesla a while ago. I'm not going to sell anytime soon. Do you think it's still important for long-term investors to look at that anyway? Or like what value is there to, to that kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, I don't think there should be, like you said, like theoretically, it should not really matter be of that much importance, right? Um, but in reality, many of us are watching our brokerage account every single day and see the numbers go up and down. We get like giddy feelings when it goes up and bad, bad <laughs> feelings when it goes down. And we wonder what causes that and we investigate it. And and it's things like the delivery numbers or, or things like that that actually cause it. But if you can rise above that intellectually, like it sounds like you are and like realize it shouldn't matter. Why do we even, you know, that's a good place to be, you know? And, uh, I, I feel like I could try to get myself there if I didn't have this fund and stuff, but I really enjoy diving into the day-to-day -day metrics. It, it encourages me to learn more about the company and look at things more carefully, you know, so I sort of enjoy it and that, I don't know if I can get away from it. That makes me, uh, want to ask my second question, which is, um, what, like, what about like this, your job is like full of a lot of research and stuff. What drives you, like what, what about the research is interesting to you? Like, do you just like business or? Yeah, no, I love, I'm very curious by nature. Um, and certain things make me more curious, especially predicting the future. You know, like I want to know the future and I want to know technology in the future. Like, uh, and, and, and if I feel like if I can get a good take or a good beat, like I was always, one of the first kids trying to convince my mom to buy me the Reebok pumps or whatever in school. I remember when they came out and I wanted that cool new technology or I wanted the new Sega Genesis, you know, when it first came out or whatever, you know, I wanted the new stuff like yesterday, you know? And so that's just always been part of who I am. And, you know, I want the new Tesla cars and now I have a good excuse to get the new Tesla cars like right away because I, I call it investment research for myself and my wife. <laughs> you know, if I didn't have a, such a big investment, my wife would be like, why are you buying it right away? Just, you know, whatever. So, Do you have so, the FSD um, beta? I do now. Yeah, I do have. At first, I didn't want it so badly because I didn't. I don't trust myself. I get so comfortable with technology, but I did get it um, uh, like a month ago and I love it. Yeah, it's it's really super amazing. 
Um, and I'm trying, making sure I'm not getting comfortable with it where I'm not like watching, but it does a, the good thing about it is it has a really good eye tracking camera. So every time I try to look at the screen to pull up the browser, it's like beeps at me. It's like, keep your eyes on the road. So it's like very, <laughs> it harasses you if you're not really looking at the road, even sunglasses don't work. So it's really it's interesting. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah apparently Lex Friedman was right on that that front because he used to talk to Elon about that a long time ago and he was like, no, no, we don't need to do any driver monitoring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, it's helpful in this in this in this time frame they have like his next uh, you know this period of time where they're transitioning from FSD beta to full self-driving, you know um, so this transition from FSD beta to to the term full self-driving uh, could be, you know, many more months or it could be a couple of years or, or maybe it's sooner or maybe it's just three months away. I don't know. But during this time, it's, it's super important to have that eye tracking, I think on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, do you do a lot of research like on robotics because the, the Tesla bots coming out soon or. Yeah, I want to, I really want to, I want to know, like, I, I want to find the, I use Twitter now as a big source of research in general like i try to find people specialize in all different things and say different things you know so i'm trying i try to it's been a big success of me in the past to for me in the past to be able to curate my twitter feed in in such a way where i find i can research things the right way and it's actually my pinned tweet like the steps i do for that um and uh i am looking for like I have a couple of people I've started, I followed, and I think one or two I've tweeted out, like, this is a good person to follow if you're interested in the Tesla bot or whatever. But I'm trying to find who are the going to be the, you know, we know who like the battery geniuses are or the, you know, um, the uh, FSD, you know, people are and, and stuff. There's a lot of those people out there. Um, but who is going to be the robotics, the Tesla bot? niche analyst on Twitter. Like I want to figure out who that is or who those people are. I'm certainly searching for it. If you guys come across them, send me a DM or tweet it out. Yeah. I want, I want to, I want to figure that out because I have a couple people in mind, but no one's really stuck out to me. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. definitely. I, I would love to like learn more about robotics and stuff before I watch AI day because I think they might cover some of their robotic stuff. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. It's a good question. I get some, uh, some insight from that. Uh, hopefully, too, maybe they'll start pointing us the right direction on who to follow or what to what to look into. Because if you know, I'm, I'm sure they're going to be kind of similar to how we learn about something like a dojo or something like that in the in the AI day one. I wonder what kind of insight we get in AI day two as far as the, yeah. the next generation. You know, mm-hmm. of what they're yeah. be working on. Yeah, AI day two will be. So I'm so psyched for that. The demonstration of the uh, the bot. It's gonna. Yeah. I don't know. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be wild. I think. I'm, Do you I'm, think it's going to happen? Yeah. Oh yeah. I think yeah. so. I think so. I think it's already ready. Like, um, from my understanding, this 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 bot is very real. And this is some. I talked to someone like six months ago or a little longer. That's like you know, important at Tesla, and uh, they said the bot is very real and very spooky. Like, <laughs> kind of crazy. Oh. Like, it, it's it's uh, not the word spooky, but something like. Can't remember the exact word, but it was like. It's scary or so. I don't know. Like it was scary like the or person. Yeah. yeah, the person had seen. I think imply the person didn't say it, but they imply. I I inferred that they have seen this bot, and that was like going back six or eight months ago when I talked to that person. Wow. 
So it's spooky mm-hmm. because of its capabilities, because of how because of how advanced it is, or, or they didn't really want to go into detail, you know. Of, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, I don't want sure. it, you know they don't want to give out any inside information or anything. But I, I got the gist, or I read between the lines, like, wow, this thing is going to blow people's yeah. minds. What's this person's name so we can hit? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. put it in the chat. Oh man! <laughs> so, yeah. are you going to try to be there for AI Day? I would love to be there. I mean, I'm sure it's going to be a hard way to get, you know, I don't think the first AI day you couldn't be there. It was like a special invite only or something. And like, you know, a couple of YouTubers got, mm-hmm. were able to go. But uh, yeah, I don't, I probably won't be on that list, that short, that, you know, that list, but uh, I'm definitely going to watch it. And uh, if I have an opportunity to go, I would go, you know. Watch party at Farzad's house. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm down. Are you going yeah. to uh, the investor day, Emmett? Did you get invited for that? I did not get invited. I am going down to Austin um, for a couple of days. Uh, Matt's getting down there a day before me, but then I'm going for a couple of the days too because we're just meeting with some investors in our fund or people that are interested. That We had coordinated that like months ago before we knew we were going to be part of the investor day or not, and we just thought it was a good rallying point anyway. So we're still going to be going there. Awesome. Yeah, I think Matt and I are meeting up that day he's landing. So that, that's going to be fun. And of course, if you have time while you're down here, let me know. Cool. Yeah, no, we should up. get together. Yeah. Okay. I mean, uh, we'll, we'll do something for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. There was a question that was dropped here in the or, or a comment. Uh, we were talking about sort of uh, predicting the future and, and how trying to be looking forward is super impactful. And Justin said, being good at predicting the future is a superpower, very difficult, but it pays off if done right. And obviously for your, a lot of the research that you do, Ahmed, for the companies you you invest in, and I mean, specifically Tesla, when you saw it as an opportunity back, back in the day, 2013, 2012, um, there had to be some sort of variable or some sort of skill set that you had from being able to look out into the future. What, what if anything, would you say is a good skill set or tool set to have in practice that allows you to 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 get closer to being able to see the future more clearly. How do you think about that? I don't know. I don't. You know, my. You know, it's funny. When I was younger, my dad, uh, he was very good at this too, and, um, you know, he had a very successful marketing business he built. He wasn't in the financial uh, business. Maybe he could have done much better financially if he was with his predicting the future stuff. But I remember asking him like. I think it was like the year 1999 or something, you know, and people started just started getting like flip phones, but some people still had beepers or whatever. But it was still like once in a while, you wouldn't text or anything. You just call someone once, it, you know, once in a blue moon. I'd be like, well, what do you think is going to happen in the future? Because as kids, I was always asking that or whatever. And he was right a lot of times. But he was like, I think in the future, there's going to be a time where everyone's addicted, always connected, always connected to the internet. They're never going to not want to be connected to the internet. And you'll do it with your phones or watches or devices, but you're always going to have some connection. And I remember thinking at the time, like, that's crazy. You're, you're nuts. That's not going to (laughs) happen. And sure enough, it happened. And I remember like in 2010 or maybe it's 2012 or, or, or or something when I was first invested in Tesla before Elon even brought up full self-driving as a thing or, or or self-driving cars as a thing. My dad was at like a barbecue at my house and he's like, and somehow he came up with like, yeah, full self-driving cars, that's going to be a thing. And everyone's going to, in you know, maybe 10 or 20 years, everyone's going to be, you know, they're, they're, the cars are going to drive everyone around. And I was like, you're crazy. That's not going to, that's like sci-fi, like crazy, you know, but sure enough, you know, it's coming to fruition now. So I don't know if I learned from him or I just, you know, 
just naturally am curious and he was curious and maybe it's an eight of some sort. I don't know in my genes or something, but, uh, I, uh, I definitely feel like, um, I just like to, in my head, play stories out based on all the information I learn. So I, I try to learn information from a lot of different perspectives. And then in my head, whether it's when I'm going to sleep or just even when I'm driving or whatever, there's, there's always like a stories going on in my head of how things can play out. And sometimes it just hits and I'm like, that makes the most sense. Like that's what's, and a lot of times I just don't know. It's just like, it's just like almost subconscious. I don't think it's like consciously necessarily, but sometimes it's conscious where I'm like, oh, how is this going to play out for the other automakers and versus Tesla, you know, but the more information I take in from different perspectives, the easier it is for me to play different stories and find what I think is the most likely story to play out. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I always find that it's at least for the way I try to do it, it seems more intuitive than anything. Like if I'm trying to look forward, it just, there's some, something in my, in my body says, this is the most likely scenario. And it's, and I feel it very strongly. And if I think yeah. back to how Tesla was like, like, obviously I don't know for sure if it's going to work out, obviously, like nobody does, but I just had such an overwhelming conviction. It was so logical and it seemed so likely that it almost, my body was like, you have to, you have to invest in it. You have to invest in it. And yeah. I sometimes wonder if, um, how helpful something like AI is going to be in helping us predict the future more accurately in a way, you know, maybe we put in the variables that exist today and then the AI system will say, these are the most likely scenarios or kind of like Dolly too. It like paints a picture of what the future could look like. And then the ones that resonate the, the, the most with you at that subconscious level are the ones that could potentially be ones you want to follow through and see if it's a likely scenario. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would be, I, that could be the next AI big tool thing that comes out, right? <laughs> you can ask it a question, like a crazy. fortune teller, and it, yeah. it gives you a, an answer or a set of answers and tells you the probabilities on them or something. That'd be pretty cool. And hopefully everybody has access to it because if only yeah. a few have access to it, oh boy, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah maybe they've already built the tool and we don't even know and only a couple <laughs> people have access, right? Nancy Pelosi has it. We yeah. all know that. That's why she has such a good trading record. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, that's, that's great. Go ahead, Hans. There's yeah, there's a big difference though between being able to predict the future relatively accurately and then being able to trade effectively on those predictions. And so, how do you think about closing that gap? And um, you know, is that mainly your role in the hedge fund? Yeah, uh, to execute a trading tra strategy around something. I would say so. I mean, I definitely confer with Matt, I, but I think it's you know. Um, Probably uh, we both make joint decisions, obviously, but I, I, I think uh, and he comes up with great ideas that I just agree with all, a lot, too, and stuff. But I think we focus on assigning probabilities to these predictions. Right. So we put a prediction out there. I think my that S&P 500 options trade that was really cool that I went over with Dave like live and we did it live. I don't mm -hmm. know if you guys recall, recall that, but oh, yeah. we talk, I talked a lot about probabilities on that. And I was just like, well. I know I'm biased, but I think there's like a 40% chance or whatever that Tesla gets to $700 by this time. So it would be irresponsible of me not to put a certain amount of money towards that when it could have a 10x or 20x return or something or whatever it was. I forget the, you know, but it, but I do in my head, I think I try to think like that with the investing decisions. I try to think like, okay, lemonade insure tech stock. Like, what do I think the probability of it failing is, is it more than, is it like 90% or is it like 50% or whatever? And if it succeeds, you know, what's the percentage of succeeding, you know, to a point where there's a five or 10 X return on the stock, you know? And 
So I try, we try to think like that for the investment decisions we make. And then it's just a matter of being willing to risk capital for that type of uh, thinking, right? And if I, um, if I do it enough, um, then, and, and I'm, uh, you know, I have to do, I have to do it in small pieces for a while to like calibrate myself or to understand if I'm successful at it or not, because you might just be lucky the first time you might be unlucky the first five times. Right. But if you do it, if you can find like, you know, 10 or tens of times to do that over a period of time, and you, you see the overall account, you know, the growth going up, then, you know, you're probably, you're, you're doing it successfully, you know, if the sample size is big enough, but if you keep yourself to do it just once or twice, that's not a sample mm-hmm. size you can make a judgment on, right? Maybe you're really good at it and you just, you know, the 40% chance was not in your favor on that time, but you just got discouraged because you failed that first time, you know? So you got to do, I feel like with smaller baskets of money at first, especially to kind of calibrate your own judgment. And then over time you can calibrate, but maybe you're also one of the people that is not good at that and you just shouldn't do it. And that's a realistic possibility too, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, Hans, maybe we'll use this time to transition to the next topic. Uh, What would you like to bring forward? Sure. Um, Let's see how much time do we have? There's, I think think, one of the, Emmett, you have a hard cutoff at uh, 15, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like, Perfect. 40 we'll a few minutes uh, before. more minutes yeah. or something. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. So I think the topic that is closely connected to kind of what we're talking about right now that might be interesting is, do you watch uh, the all in podcast much by chance? Yeah, I do listen to it for sure. I think it's a very high signal to noise ratio podcast for sure. So they had uh, on one of the recent episodes, I think it was maybe two back. There was a, a discussion between um, Chamath and well, Chamath was really the one who kind of went off on the subject of free cash flow and how that he's not a fan or the criticism that he had of free cash flow and um, but also EBITDA and basically saying that almost echoing a Buffett style sentiment that if it's not gap profit, then you know. It's not real. And um, how do you think about that whole topic? Do you remember that segment? And kind of, I do remember that segment. I remember feeling like I learned something in that segment and it made a lot of sense to me. But at the same time, as a general, uh, applying that as a general rule, I, to me, it seems like, um, it would be foolish to apply as a general rule, but it's a rule to think about or to consider when looking at any individual company, I would say. Mm-hmm. So I would want to study the company, whether it's Tesla or Lemonade or whatever the company is, or if it's a value stock like Exxon or whatever, I'd, I'd want to then consider what he was talking about with the cash flows. And the, I think it was compensation and stuff. He was talking about yeah, stock based comp. Yeah. So I'd want to consider what he was saying on the particular stock. Like I, if it would be almost foolish for me not to consider what he was saying when I'm looking at an individual stock, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. It was interesting though. Yeah. It was good for him because not many people talk about that kind of angle of looking at an investment, you know, opportunity of a publicly traded stock. Well, especially in the market environment that we've been in where people were getting so enthusiastic about, especially tech companies and that's their typical framework is hey you know let's let's look at free cash flow let's add stock based comp back in and look yeah. at cash balances and um yeah, yeah there's a couple of companies they mentioned as references i can't remember which ones but yeah it seems like it's such a growing trend in tech stocks 
mm-hmm. in the newer tech stocks, especially that it's it's something that you really want to hone I think in on. Zendesk for. may have been the maybe that was the one they were talking about the example of yeah, but it was yeah. a really interesting point and something that uh, I took as like a potential pink flag to consider with the te- with tech stocks in general. Is pink flag kind of like a red flag, but not as serious? Yeah, <laughs> that's how I think of it. It's okay. like, uh, yeah, it's like pink flag is like maybe it could become a red flag, but it's something I want to look yeah. at. Right. Do more research. Yeah, we need to get yeah. you some pink flag merch, Emmett. For you, <laughs> <laughs> it's a term I use way too much. The pink flag. I don't like to use red flag because I feel like that's like too binary. Pink flag is more like, yeah, maybe it's something you need to consider and think about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was a there was something that Rodman was talking about before uh, we started the the live stream. It's loosely tied to this topic, but where do you think all so? And then Hans or Mike, remind me if I'm thinking of like misremembering the topic, but it, it kind of like uh, made it. I wanted to hear more about it, but it was essentially during this market downturn, people are selling sh- shares. There's there's more selling than buying. There's a bunch of cash oh, yeah, out yeah. there. Where the hell is this cash going? Do you think, Emmett? Like mm-hmm. what what's going on here? Like what's happening? <laughs> Yeah, it's where so has weird. all the money in the stock market gone to? Not yeah. as advice, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, macroeconomic stuff can be so complicated. I, you know, I'm trying to simplify things. And I just think there's a lot of people um, kind of on the sidelines waiting with a, lot, a large chunk of their cash, more so than in the past, you know, and, and uh, waiting for some kind of clear signal that we're at or close or we're at a bottom or a bottom is forming that, you know, um, they, so they can put some cash back to work. Cause I don't think anyone wants to keep us dollars in their bank account long-term, you know, I think, especially with inflation being the hot topic it is today. Right. So maybe, um, that's why you saw commodities go up or you see other sector, other things go up, you know, um, as almost like a, people try to put their cash somewhere else, you know, and it yeah. causes traders to kind of speculate on that too, to, you know, create extra um, accentuations in the movements of commodities or re- maybe, maybe eventually real estate will come back up if, if this, if the, if people don't want to put their cash back into equities long-term, I think the bond market is down too uh, or something. So, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I think it's just a lot of asset institutional, Asset managers, pension funds, stuff, you know, they have trillions of dollars combined and they've kind of adjusted their modeling to keep a higher percentage of cash at the moment. That's my best guess. And uh, that would explain um, it. Yeah. Yeah. That's my Yeah. Best I know guess. that Chamath mentioned uh, that talking to hedge fund guys, that most of the flows right now, like a lot of the buying is happening by retail investors, that smart money is not buying they're either selling yeah. or holding. I would almost argue that we're kind of in this like weird flippening where the smart money is becoming retail investors, you know, um, in general, like there's still a lot of dumb retail investors. Don't get me wrong. Like, you know, of course there's always going to be, mm-hmm. but I think by and large with all the open source information we now have, there's no like specific sell side analyst research. That's like super valuable these days on, you see it with Tesla, for example, you know, and you see tons of retail people buying Tesla way before any institutional money is bought into Tesla. So I think that's just a symptom of, of this kind of flippening of, you know, retail money, even though it's, you know, the institutional money being seen as smart money. I think that's like a misnomer term, you know, in, in the future, I think, you know, sophisticated retail investors, um, are probably going to be, should be considered the smart money in the future. Yeah. I, I've always felt like 
that like every time I watch Tesla Daily, um, it's like it's like here's what this retail or this here's what this institutional investor wrote about Tesla and their price targets or whatever, <laughs> whatever that even means. But yeah. I'm just like, why are they why are they not valuing like FSD beta? Why why are they not valuing the Tesla bot? Why are they not like? It just seems like to me it's like this is obviously the trend this like ai taking over everything um why are they not like like i hear people say like it's because they don't have a way to put it into their model or well their their primary responsibility is not to make money it's just to make a little bit more money than the index and not to lose money so they're worried about different things than most retail investors are and you do have to kind of keep that in the back of your mind as you're evaluating why they do what they do that makes sense yeah yeah, I think the individual. Yeah, you look at individual incentives of the people producing this report, you know, and uh, their goal is to get a better payday from their company, and the company, the goal of the company is to get more inbound interest from the buy side clients that they service and such. So um, they have to, they have to kind of, you know, when I put that all together, I realize it's just a. a a complete curmudgeon to <laughs> see the, the whole uh, research uh, stuff. Yeah, so it's yeah. kind of crazy. But I feel like mm. the the more the more uh, I'm coming to terms with is that that sort of uh, environment existing where these guys are not necessarily incentivized to look at the future is what gives retail investors the opportunity to take advantage of that gap in knowledge. Or that yeah. gap in that gap in action, and that's why yeah, 100%. that's that's why Tesla, that's why retail investors can jump in and hopefully uh, capitalize on those future gains because these folks are just they they don't want to do that because they're not incentivized and perhaps they don't have it's a it's a legacy system that is built purely around that me- mechanic that uh or mechanism that Hans just outlined and Emma just outlined you know yeah it's like good that it exists like before I was so angry I'm like why doesn't Gary Black get it you know I'm like why doesn't this person I love Gary by the way Gary you're welcome anytime if you watch this by the way I love you, bro. Yeah. he's the best he's the most savage uh uh Twitter analyst on because he just says it how it is and I, and I love yeah. him for it but but that that is over time I find that to be a great thing because you have sort of, sort of a barometer of people out there. Again, not investment advice, but you have a barometer of people that are in the markets that are telling you how they're thinking about Tesla. And if you're in the retail side and you're like, well, I'm confident you don't, you're not taking this into account, you're not taking this into account, that's the gap. And that's where mm-hmm. you can you know, come in and, and capitalize on that. You know? yeah. So I'm yeah. glad it exists. You know? yeah. and, I'm gl- and I'm glad they drive so much of the conversation in a way. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. What do you guys think about this? I want speaking of like predicting the future with like research yeah. and all that stuff. This is something I've been kind of stewing on, like one of those stories in my head that's going around that keeps getting traction. But I'm not sure if it's if it's real now. But I, I throw it out there. What you think? What do you think of like all this interest with the crypto, you know, boom that we've seen, you know, in the last few years? By and large, there's been a lot of younger people, obviously, a lot of younger tech-focused people that are super interested in Ethereum and all these these altcoins and all that stuff. That you know, and these are people that were not investing in financial stock markets typically. I'd say before they were kind of like turned off. It's like, oh, that's my grandparents' thing or whatever. You know, they probably turned off on it. But what do you guys think about this younger generation of people kind of coming around to the idea that you know what stocks are incredible? It's like better than cryptocurrency because you can buy stocks and sure yeah it could be you know you have some board that could issue more shares or something but by and large 
buying these shares of stocks, I'm getting much more for my buck versus buying some crypto code because the stock represents a piece of ownership of a company that produces something and could eventually give me dividends and all this stuff, you know? So I don't know. I feel like there could be some awakening of the younger woke folks that are so into crypto to realize and come around to like, you know, the older people that have been investing in stocks, that's maybe that's what I wanted all along. And I should just kind of fall into place and start researching stocks and buying stocks and stuff. I don't know. What do you so think? So it's kind of like a gateway drug to like investing in stocks kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> gateway drug to invest in stocks for it's young people. That so, before the Coke. <laughs> yeah. Young people that were so stubborn to do what their parents do or whatever, trying to do their yeah. own thing. Yeah. I just find it weird that people see cryptocurrency as an investment. I'm like, no, I think stocks are the investment. Cryptocurrency yeah. is a currency. It's meant to be spent. Like it's yeah. a, you, you don't spend stock. You can't be like, oh, so I'll, here's a stock of Tesla. Yeah. Give me a, you know, my groceries. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, that is the name, but that's definitely not what exists currently. Everything that exists currently is basically yeah, all Ponzi's on top of Ponzi's on top of Ponzi's. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And yeah, I say that as someone who I've spent several months late last year, early this year, really spending a bunch of time in the Solana ecosystem. I launched a small NFT project to kind of see how that worked and what all was going on and uh, bought and sold a bunch. And my takeaway after several months of it was that the technology there's no product market fit other than selling hope to people and uh, fleecing unsophisticated investors. And uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll see. I don't think that's going to be the long term. I think there's going to be useful products that are created in that ecosystem. Mm -hmm. But you have to sift through a ginormous hill of crap before you'll ever find what that is right now. Yeah. yeah. I do think I do think that the notion though that uh people invested in crypto is somehow going to be a uh in a like a like a gateway towards individual stocks and uh you know put all the shit coins aside. I I do think Bitcoin I personally think Bitcoin has value. Like this mm -hmm. borderless transaction of values is very attractive, and we have families uh, in, in in you know in countries that that don't have great yeah. uh, reliable governments, and Bitcoin is actually a very 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 usable thing. So outside of Bitcoin, it's kind of dubious for me. But um, I do think I do think it allows financial literacy and people understanding how markets work is especially in the states. I find no one knows what the hell a market cap is. You know, no one <laughs> understands what yeah. a stock market is and that when you buy a stock, you're just trading with somebody who's willing to sell you the stock. It's not just being created in this random space. You know, a lot of people don't really understand how the market actually works and how and how IPOs are, mm -hmm. are, are created and how uh, companies can uh, add additional shares. Like, and, and I do think I am hopeful that the crypto movement and really the the advent of Robin Hood and these like um, these um, sort of uh, things that are making investing more accessible for especially for the younger generation, I do mm -hmm. think is going to bring more people to the table long term that are going to be buying and selling stocks. I don't know mm -hmm. if that's ten percent trading of the or people. whatever. Yeah. Exactly. I don't know if it's fifty percent of the of the crypto people, but um, 
I, I do think the net, the overall net number of people that will be investing in stocks will be higher because of crypto, because it's it's that gateway into, oh, I bought a thing that went up over time and I can sell it to somebody. And then they'll mm -hmm. be like, what mm -hmm. else can I do that with? Oh, shit, I can do that with stocks. And then you go on mm -hmm. Robinhood or whatever, and then you, it's the same sort of thing, but you actually own uh, a piece of something, you know? Mm. Um, yeah, I, I do think, but again, like percentage of how how much more it's going to add to the overall number of investors, I don't know if, I don't know what that's going to look like, but any exposure yeah. is good exposure, I think, because it's just so little, so little literacy when it comes to that. Like, it took me forever yeah. to understand what a market yeah. cap was, you know? <sighs> I'm hopeful that you're correct, and I think that it's the right lesson to learn from the crypto markets. I think there's going to be, you know, some people that learn that, some people that don't. Um, there are a lot of people who have been through multiple boom bust cycles in the crypto markets, and they're just going to stay in the crypto markets because they've figured out how to survive and thrive long term in that ecosystem. But you know, a lot of the people that get washed out, I think, are going to be divided up into either just getting burned on making speculative investments and not do that again for a long time. Or yeah, then there'll be, a, I don't know if it'll be a larger or smaller subset that say, Hey, you know, this was good, but I need to go to a regulated market because, you know, there's actually a reason why all that regulation exists in the stock market and why we have the protections and disclosures and stuff that we have in the mm -hmm. stock market. Cause it's all really important. And uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, maybe for the last uh, 20 minutes or so here before we before we leave 15, 20 minutes, uh, drop some questions in the comments section for us. Let's see if we can get to them. Put question before and then we'll try to uh, get to it. But then Hans, maybe um, I know you were talking about the uh, I don't know if you want. It was a question yeah, about capitalism yeah, that was super interesting or, or whatever you want to ask about. Yeah. So you've kind of mentioned and danced around the idea of what I think you've called merciful capitalism in a number of interviews. But don't remember seeing anything as of yet where you really go into detail on first of all what your like what is the framework that you're thinking about merciful capitalism in and then why like what is the motivation why is that important to you um, maybe both from a, a large macro perspective but also personally yeah so uh, Matt and I are both very aligned on this and you know, we I came up with that. We came up with that. I came up with the idea of merciful capitalism because some a couple of people were throwing the idea of apologetic capitalism to us and calling us like apologetic capitalists or something. And I looked that up and I was like, that's not what we, we're not like apologizing for being successful. You know, um, so merciful is just like the way I think of it is, you know, we have been very fortunate to be a huge benefactor of capitalism. Um, and um, not everyone is as fortunate. And some of the excess, you know, capital that we have that we've been fortunate to to attain, uh, we want to give back, you know, and and to and give back to charities in a smart way. And so um, we just don't see giving back as big of, uh, you know, especially in financial discourse. Um, we don't see giving back as something talked about hardly ever. Um, you know, occasionally you'll have like a billion dollar hedge fund that goes to like charity events, like hedge fund cares or whatever. And they might donate, you know, a hundred thousand bucks to get a part and they get a parking space at the San Francisco giants, uh, you know, baseball stadium for their, in their name or something. I don't know, but you don't realize maybe that hundred thousand dollars is just like, tiny, tiny penny in the bucket of that billion dollar hedge funds fees where they're making billions of dollars a year, you know? And so 
we want to do something different. So we wrote into our bylaws or our offering documents of our fund that we are going to give back 50% of the fees we generate net of expenses to charity. So we, we have to follow that law, you know, of our fund. So we're hoping to do, you know, to, to be an example, like even if our fund is not successful, it's not so much, we just want to be an example of kind of this, you know, evolution of where capitalism we think should go or could go in a positive way. And maybe it's called merciful capitalism or whatever you want to call it. I don't know, but just giving back more actively for the people that are most successful. Like ESG has become a big trend, right? And what do we see it's become? It's become kind of like this corrupt thing, right? Well, maybe instead of ESG, maybe there could be like a giving back thing, like people write into the laws of their funds or prospectuses or their businesses, like Lemonade Insurance does something like this actually, uh, and say, we're going to give back 10% of our uh, profits to charities. Um, and I feel like if that trend took off, it would do a lot of good, a lot of social good, because money given directly to charities, I think goes a lot further pound for pound than money that's taxed by the government and then goes through a whole kind of inefficient process to get pushed back to the people for those same causes maybe those charities serve. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? So it's a good way to kind of like maybe keep the government from overgrowing you know, if no one gave back to charity, the government would have to grow by necessity at a higher rate, maybe to help support the things that charity could otherwise help support. Um, and at the same time, capitalism does also see, seem like in recent years, in, in you know, has gotten sort of a bad name with younger with the younger generation who's become more um, interested in socialism and 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 even communism. And uh, you see a lot of young liberal arts students coming out of colleges these days and colleges teaching it like socialism is, is where we need to go. And I think that would be a grave mistake for our civilization. So maybe this could play a part in helping to steer that younger generation, which is getting older and bigger, you know, a voting age and such um, helps steer them to think, you know, maybe socialism doesn't need to happen. Maybe capitalism can be good, you know. So there's a lot of reasons why we do it. But that that that. Is that is I probably just threw out a lot of stuff, but does it make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So yeah. have then, you uh, have you encountered the concept of effective altruism? And is that something that's kind of guiding yeah. your deployment? It's very of, similar. It's very yeah. similar. Um and uh I would say it's another term or sort of semantics of very something very mm -hmm. similar to the same thing we're doing. I would say, um, I know like Sam Bankman Friedman, he's got a huge charity. He's, you know, uh, I don't know if I said his name right, but he's the guy of FTX, the head of FTX, like one of the future thought leaders, you know? Um, so he's doing something very generous as well with a lot of his capital, you know? So I think if you get more people, but, but then you have to also be careful with making it political. Like there's so many like charities that are really just like political organizations disguised as charities in some way. So I want to mm -hmm. stay away from that as much as possible. And so when we have our guests on our channel um, come on and we we tell ask them for a um, a charity to give to donate, you know, in, in name of their, you know, in their name, like in the, of their choice for coming on our channel, we're careful to make sure it's not like a, a potentially politically controversial charity. Mm -hmm. So I know I there's been like some talk question. recently of like Sam Bankman Friedman, like using some of his capital to like, do some political stuff. I'm not sure if that's part of his altruistic capitalism stuff or not, but uh, hopefully it's not. Hopefully that's just something separate he's doing. 
whenever people bring up charities to me, I always think like I always think what, what do I like. There's like better charities than others because some are very efficient with their capital and others mm-hmm. kind of just waste it with a bunch of busybody to hire all their friends to like yeah I don't know pass papers around or something yeah 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 so how do how do people do I mean am I the only one who thinks about that or no like, it's a it's a big it's a big obstruction or a big obstacle in how to give back I agree and um, there's two two things I want to say on that one is. I, I watched a really interesting, I'm trying to find the guy, I think I might've tweeted it once, but there's this YouTube Ted talk by a guy who did like a breast cancer walk for awareness foundation or, or charity set up. And it became one of the biggest breast cancer, you know, uh, grants, like many millions of dollars, like hundreds of millions of dollars or something. It's like the breast cancer walks you see all over the country once a year or something is because of his foundation or charity, I think. But it started out as a charity that actually was like $50,000 but he dedicated like 30,000 of it to marketing it, right? And that's normally like a black mark. Like, why would you donate to a charity that has such overhead, that has like 60% overhead or something like that? But because he was able to use that $30,000 to market his charity effectively, he was able to raise, you know, millions of dollars suddenly for a good cause. So the pie grew much bigger of capital. You know, so there's arguments you can make to like say, well, if their overhead is so high, I shouldn't donate to them. But maybe that overhead is being used to help draw more awareness and more money coming mm-hmm. in to make the pie bigger. So there's lots of ways to look at it, I guess, is what I'm saying. It doesn't mean it's always the case, but it's possible, you know, because my head first goes to the same place. Like, hey, if this charity has such like 70 percent overhead, I'm not going to donate it to. They're probably just pushing papers around paying for their own houses and stuff. You know, mm-hmm. that's the first thought that comes to my head, too. But that guy, that 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 YouTube uh, or that TED talk really opened my eyes up. Um, and the other thing is, we have we, you know we're spreading out the donations. It's so hard to give back to pick the right, char- right charities. So we have you know all our guests you know that we have on our channel, Good Soul Investment Management cha- YouTube channel. When they, we do a recorded interview, we tell them to pick a charity of their choice and they research it. A lot of times they don't have one in mind, and sometimes they do. But a lot of times, like, oh, this is great, I'll research some. And they come back to us and we talk about it for five or 10 minutes. But mm-hmm. we also research it on our end and we vet it a bit on our end to make sure it's not some kind of scam or something, um, if that makes sense. So, And we mm-hmm. diversify across a lot of different charities this way. So we're not putting all our eggs in one basket of one big charity that could be a scam or not. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, thank yeah. you for those for, for that insight. Yeah, awesome. Um, there's a couple questions in the comment section I want to get to uh, here as we close out the stream. First, I want to start with Buck. Buck, thank you so much for the $10 super chat. Man, you're the man. Buck's been around for a long, long time. <laughs> Listen to the channel. So thank you, hey, Buck. Really appreciate you. Um, cool. Cybertruck will be a huge boost to Tesla once they start appearing on the streets. General public can't tell us a Tesla sedan from others. Uh, Cybertruck is undeniable. What impact do y'all think Cybertruck will make? Who wants to take that one first? I'll just say a quick thing. I think it's going to, I think Buck is right. I think uh, the Cybertruck appearing on streets is going to be insane. It's going to, where people are going to be like, what is this thing? And uh, I thought, sort of thought the same thing about the Model X Falcon Wing doors when the Model X first came out. Like, mm-hmm. what are these freaking doors? And I was one of the first people with it, and everyone stopped me and wanted to talk about it. And it was cool. Like, if you're ready to be the, center of attention but if, if you don't want to be the center of attention then you probably don't want to want one of the first cyber truck deliveries but i think a lot of people are open to you know being the center of attention and, and want it so um yeah what do you guys think so i thought about this um as a you know i managed a cleaning company for a couple of years and i i had several 
reservations personally, but I was thinking about using one of those reservations when it came up for the business because I feel like it would be a huge marketing thing, for, you know, especially for any like local service people, like the dude running around in a cyber truck. That's like so much free advertising right there. You're going to get so many eyeballs. <laughs> that's right. People sure. are going to immediately gravitate towards you and you're going to get that Tesla overhang. Like, yeah, you put your company logo on it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think, I think what Buck says is completely true, both for Tesla, but then also for anyone who wants to leverage that for their own personal marketing efforts. Yeah. No, it's a good point. Like you can put your business name on it. And if you're one of the first ones with it, that's going to get your business a ton of business. Just being one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Any thoughts, I, could see, I could see people calling a phone number on it and just be oh, like, yeah. I just called to see what, what that truck was. <laughs> <laughs> How do I get one? Yeah. Do you have a referral code? <laughs> yeah, what I, defense I'm, contractor did you buy that tank yeah. from? <laughs> what time machine did you come out of? <laughs> I'm Where's most excited because I, I do live in the sort of like pickup country in Texas when, when I get mine. I can't wait to go uh, just drive around and just interview like hardcore pickup truck owners. Like I want to go to like a car show with a bunch of pickup trucks and just go around and be like, yo, I want to show you something. And I just want to get like live reactions of people, you know? Yeah. Just like uh, reacting yeah. to this thing. <laughs> Sparza, uh, didn't, you, didn't you interview um, Todd, the Cybertruck truck guy? I did. Yeah, yeah. He, I love I love his saying. He's like, it's a truck disguised as a tank disguised as a triangle. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. That's it's good. so true. Uh, we'll do uh, a few more minutes, Emmett. You, you're still yeah. uh, good for a couple sure. minutes? Yeah. I want to yeah. make sure. I want to be respectful. So, no, I thank you so much for the $5 Super Chat, man. I really appreciate you guys. Um, a few months ago, uh, Leo uh, Koguan was calling. And Leo, I think he's the largest individual um, stockholder of Tesla, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yep. Um, yeah. A few months ago, uh, Leo was calling for a stock Tesla stock buyback. Anybody know why that didn't happen? Do you think it might in the future? Uh, Emmett, we'll start with you. Uh, yeah, I remember that. And, um, you know, these things don't happen like immediately when some, you know, maybe the idea was floated in the next board meeting. They talk, touch on it or something. Um, but I think it's way, it's premature for Tesla stock buyback in this kind of macro environment as well, where we don't know how bad this recession may may or may not be for example and with uncertainty of lockdowns potentially looming still i don't think there should be any lockdowns really serious in china again hopefully not knock on wood but you never know like there's just lots of uncertainty out there still that they i think they'd prefer to have a a bigger cash cushion on Mm -hmm. for the time being but with that being said i think um Mm -hmm. in the future uh you know stock buybacks and or dividends are appropriate. That's kind of a question I really want to be asked on the earnings call is like, mm. you know, at what time will it be appropriate for Tesla to consider, you know, dividends or share buybacks? Like how much capital does Tesla need on its balance sheet for it to seriously consider that? Does it need a hundred billion of capital or 50 billion or what, you know, like they're going to start assuming the full self-driving picks up the, you know, uh, margins um, in the next six to 12 months, like, like we we think it probably will then there and and the production ramp up and the margins with with the manufacturing and the higher price points and everything they're not going to be able to reinvest those billions of dollars as quickly as they take it in in new factories in my opinion so mm-hmm. even with investing in new factories in Indonesia or wherever else like 
I feel like their balance sheet's going to still grow significantly. And at some point you got to do something with that capital, I would think. So, you know, that's a question I hope they, they can address. Uh, I wonder if Elon will be on this call or not too. Anyway, what do you guys think? Yeah, I definitely think that was a big factor in Elon's thinking uh, and the whole deal. He's been talking about being worried about macro environment for a long time. And so I know that, you know, in his mind, using any any cash to do stock buybacks when he's anticipating a macro event wouldn't have been something that made sense to him personally. So, uh, but yeah, I agree that long, you know, over the long enough term, they're going to be generating so much cash flow that it'll be hard to figure out what to do with all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, any thoughts? Um, I don't know if Elon will show up on the call this time. He, he was on mm. the call last time. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And then one last one. This one's actually a super interesting question. Philip, don't you guys ever get that chill? Like, am I totally wrong? Can Tesla really pull this off? In contrast to the times you feel like they will conquer the world, that is. Do you ever, ever doubt <laughs> or are afraid that you have this whole thing wrong and Tesla Q is right? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I used to once in a while um, when I was left to my own device and, you know, this is like 2014 or 2017 or 18 or even 19. Yeah. So I used to once in a while think that, um, you know, when I didn't, because Tesla wasn't on, you couldn't like Google, you couldn't find Tesla on Twitter very much back then either. You know, like it was, there was no Tesla Twitterverse, you know, there was like seeking alpha articles and comment sections and seeking alpha articles that were like garbage, you know, like yeah. you'd have like the battles there of the bulls versus bears and you don't know who's real or who's like a wacko or whatever. And then, and then there was the Tesla motors club forums though. And that was really uh, a great resource for um, getting the conviction back and realizing like this FUD about Tesla fires is way overblown or whatever, you know, like just understanding like these Tesla Q tactics that are meant that are, you know, all these headlines they put out to, to like really panic you as a long holder. Um, you, you get to see through that much easier when you have a lot of sophisticated Tesla bulls around you and all different specialties able to weigh in on whatever the specialty that the FUD is trying to be spread against, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I imagine I would have had chills if I was invested during that time, yeah. I always got chills watching the big events back from like 2017 to 2019, whether it was Battery Day, AI Day, like some of those big things. Um, and then I would watch the market reaction. I'd be like, holy crap, why does no one understand what they just said? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're right there. I think we're there now with full self-driving still. I think the sort of... There was so much doubt around Model 3 ramp, and I'm, I'm seeing so much of that now with full self-driving that I think, like AI Day 2, I bet you all of us are going to get chills, and the stocks- In a good way. Yeah. In a good way, yeah. Oh, okay. In a very good way, yeah. yeah. And uh, sorry, I kind of switched yeah. it up in my brain. And uh, we're going to look around and be like, how come nobody else is seeing this craziness? And then, <laughs> you know, in a couple Yeah, the of stock time, price will go down. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Crap, yeah. I don't understand it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah crazy yeah. stuff um thank you all so much for joining emmett 
you've been awesome. I, I hope everybody uh, got value out of this. That's really the, the point behind these community forums is to try and see if we can create free flow discussion that's really deep dives topics uh, with the community. Um, I'll give you the last few words. Plug your channel, plug your Twitter. Any any last <laughs> thoughts? Uh, go for it. Nah, no plugs. We don't really... Um... <laughs> I mean, if it comes up naturally, I merit reference it, but I don't really actively try to plug our channel. People who stumble upon it and like it can subscribe on their own. I don't need to tell them to subscribe or, or like it or whatever. So it's not a money-making operation in any way. We just kind of try to open source our ideas or research with specialty people we interview there. We'll see what happens over time with it. But we like doing that once a week live stream thing on Tuesdays to go over stuff. And uh, yeah, Farzan, I think you should, uh, as I mentioned to you in the chat, I think you should figure out how to do this on Twitter spaces at the same time, because I do like your live streams, but I'm most often scrolling through Twitter to look for updates from Elon or whatever. And then I see yeah. the spaces pop up of like other people doing Tesla. And then I start listening to it. I'm like, these people don't know what they're really talking about. And these people really are invested in Tesla very much, but maybe whole Mars is on it or something. And then I recognize yeah. later when I look at YouTube that you were doing a live stream at the same time. I would <laughs> rather listen to that, you know? So I yeah. think like if you could just, you know, there's ways to do it. Um, you can't take on like if we're doing a chat like this with the four of us or five of us, whatever, you just say everyone go on Twitter at the same time. I'm going to invite you all as co-hosts and we'll have our AirPods in at the same time, but turn your microphone down on your computer because you'll listen to me on your AirPods or whatever. And then there's no background noise. Then you're talking and everything's being picked up at the same time on Twitter spaces as well as this. And it gets yeah. you more exposure and you know, something to think about. Mm -hmm. You know, I, th I think it would For be sure. helpful to the, to broadening because a lot of people tune into that, those t Twitter spaces and they'll have like 600 or a thousand people listening. And, yeah. uh, the people that are talking are kind of like making a lot, half the people or more than half are like, don't really understand what they're talking about. Yeah. 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 That's true. No, I'm definitely going to look into that. That's, that's great. And I really appreciate you saying that. Emmett. I, 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 my whole priority is good quality discussion. That is just, we're trying to get to the bottom of stuff. So if, uh, if we can, I'm definitely going to look into it. We'll probably test it for one of the ones next week. We, we might yeah. do it for the Q2 earnings. Maybe we'll, we'll try for the Q2 earnings. We're going to have a live stream on here. We'll do it on Spaces as well. And yeah. Maybe we'll use that idea. as a trial run. Well, yeah, the thing about the Q2 guys, earnings you have to yeah. be careful of, there's so many like YouTubers all doing live streams at the same time. Oh, true. A good time maybe True. to test it, like when no, when you think there's, it's not like a super popular. Maybe the day. I don't before. know. I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah, we're gonna have Tom Nash on the day before, uh, just to chat with him, and maybe we'll use that as a trial run and see how that works. Yeah, or maybe the day or that Friday or something. Yeah, he'd be yeah. great because he's probably got a, like a hundred thousand Twitter followers too, or something. You know, he's probably got a it's lot. Quite a bit. And, mm -hmm. Yeah, you could just lie, and all a good portion of them will tune in just because they're browsing Twitter at the same time that he's talking mm -hmm. to you. Yeah. Emmett, is yeah. there anyone who does a simulcast on YouTube and Twitter that you're aware of that does it it's well? Investment. <laughs> we do it on Tuesday mornings, yeah, yeah or Tuesday at, at nine thirty Pacific time, twelve thirty Eastern time. Matt and I, but we we experimented. We had to figure out it's 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 not mm -hmm. necessarily super intuitive. But once you do it once, it's super intuitive and you understand it. So just doing it that first time, it then it, if it goes smoothly, then you like you nail it down. It's easy. But that first time, it's like a little weird to like figure out and play with but it's really all it is is you set up the twitter spaces at the same time and then the people on the twitter spaces you know you you hook them into that and then you you turn down your volume coming out of your um you you, you turn down your volume coming out of your computer speaker because you don't want the echo on the twitter spaces but then you can hear the people talking on the twitter spaces airpods in your ear and then when I'm talking, my microphone picks it up for the YouTube live at the same time or you're you know I don't if that makes sense you need to sort mm -hmm. of I, yeah, I, I, 
Yeah, yeah. So you just need to make that separation. Once you do that, it's it's very easy. Do you have any other feedback for us? Like, what stuff we could do better? No, I think that's it. I mean, that's the only. I think that would be the lowest hanging, and not necessarily low hanging fruit. It's sort of tricky fruit, but I think that would be the most. Uh, it would be by far the most um, important fruit to to tackle, in my opinion. Awesome. Yeah. Because Twitter really is such a huge it. meeting place. People discover different people. Your The yeah. YouTube channel will grow much more likely too, in my opinion, if you do that. You'll get a wider audience on the YouTube channel too. Because you yeah. can mention in the beginning, like, yeah, we're on our YouTube live channel as well. If people want to watch it or, you know. But you can't take in like guests on Twitter spaces, for example, like guest speakers on Twitter spaces. It won't translate to YouTube live. And in your YouTube live, you wouldn't be able to take on the guest appearances live on the fly from someone asking a question in video yeah. format, you know, we'll probably exactly. have to do the spaces on like for specific forums where we want add additional people. And then yeah. for the additional people one, it's like Twitter spaces only or, or YouTube. Only. Yeah, um, exactly. But it's, no, I, I really appreciate that feedback and mm -hmm. we'll definitely look to make it happen. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, man. Cool. Um, and since you won't plug your channel, Good Soul Investment, <laughs> YouTube, Emmett Peppers, <laughs> Matt Smith. Amazing. Yeah. They do great yeah. work. And yeah, yeah, thank you again, Emmett. I really appreciate you being so kind and uh, and uh, very open with your time, man. We, we cool. really enjoy it. I think I can speak on behalf of uh, Hans and, and Mike. Yeah, and thanks. It's awesome. Oh, cool. yeah. Cool. Yeah, good chatting. I'll be down in Austin uh, in a few weeks, uh, Farzad, so we'll touch base. Maybe we'll get together. When the, yeah, cool. Get some, bar some barbecue and a beer. Yeah. All right, everybody. All right, guys. Thank All right. you all Talk very much. All right. All right. Bye.